0: Greetings Langarinos, welcome to episode five of the Lango Pod podcast. I am your host, Peter. I'm a resident linguist at Lango. I have a background in syntax, phonology, and language conservation, special attention to the Pacific.
1: I'm Lisa. I teach the Korean programs at Lango, and I'm a sociolinguist. I study the social aspects of language variation and change.
2: I'm Tyler. I'm the Marie Kondo of Lango. And <laughs> That's <I> also- true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm teaching Chinese, Japanese, and English here at the, uh, these days at the moment. And my particular interest is in how languages change through time.
0: That sparks joy, Tyler.
1: It does. Well, and so does our bookshelf of language learning materials because yeah, of
0: that. All right. So today we are going to uh, set your phrases to stun because today we're studying phrase structure for the language learner. So, uh, I guess we'll start with, what even is a phrase? So the phrase is a syntactic unit, right? Syntax being the arrangement of elements in a sentence or an utterance. So you need to recall from uh, episode four, the idea, the notion of the morpheme. So morphemes are used to create words and words create phrases. I want to leave you with some phrase intuition before we get into the nitty gritty too much. Uh, And that is from a teacher all three of us shared, Hadj Ross, who said, he wrote it on the board of class when I was studying with him, OCM, only chunks move. right? So one of the ways you can test certain types of phrases is if they move as a unit. Keep this in mind uh, and look for it as we go through our discussion of phrases and syntax.
2: Let's briefly recapitulate what a morpheme is just in one example. So a word like cat, an English word, referring to the animal, that has just one morpheme. We can't cut it into any smaller meaningful parts. Whereas the plural form, cats, that has two morphemes, two meaningful pieces into which the word can be segmented.
0: And the two pieces are cat and the plural marker, s, in this case.
1: Very appropriate example. Always comes to mind.
0: <laughs> More information on cats, dogs, and judges. Please check out our most recent blog post, which is a episode number four. All right. So we talked about using morphemes to build words, but I skipped a level here and never told you what a word was. I know that if you uh, have thought about it as a listener and a speaker of a language or a signer of a language, then you have an intuition what a word is but it is a bit of a slippery concept in linguistics there are two two basic ways to define the word the first way is through phonological definition so we can call this one any word defined by its phonology we'll call it the, phon- the phonological
2: word phonology so, in case you don't recall has to do with the sounds of a word physical manifestation of speech
0: Right. So phonology distinguished from phonetics would be, of course, the, the psychological element. What is a sound in your mind, even though they realize a bit differently? Right. So one of the things we notice when we look at words, it's not it's not always easy to tell from language to language, but most languages will give you some clue at some level that sounds change a bit differently when they're touching inside a word than when they are touching between words, right? And we're gonna talk about this more at the end of the podcast. We're gonna give you a little game to play to see if you can see how you know what the phonological word is in English. Now, the second way to define a word is through syntax. So the syntactic word is a slightly less clear notion, right? It's somewhere between the phonological word and the phrase. And that's about, about as much as I'm gonna say, let's say it moves as a syntactic unit Uh, smaller than the phrase, bigger than the morpheme. That's not super helpful, uh, but you can imagine there's a myriad of syntactic definitions then, right? So uh, jumping back right quick, we want to look at some sound changes that are different within words than between words. In English, uh, we have a thing that we call juncture phenomena, which is that things, it's exactly like this things tend to change a little bit differently between words than within words. But we can create sequences of words that look like, right, in some way a single word, and it's kind of, I think it's a fun way to type text messages, for example. So our first example is spatial, as in spatial awareness, versus space eel. Eel, a fish, which is in space, right? So spatial, uh, when these sounds touch, the... sounds, you mean the e in spatial uh-huh. touches the t or nominally s sound mm-hmm. it becomes a sound but space eel does not become spatial because you know, the e is touching the s you
2: no know, it seems to have the same sounds involved right
0: it seems to have the same sounds involved and our next example is maybe a little bit more clear we're going to have a couple examples <laughs> till you get
2: the idea and but let's rough- just Look at the po- The main point briefly. We often use this hashtag symbol to represent a word boundary. So the fact that a sound change happens in one case but not the other, we're saying, lets us hear that there is a word boundary in the second case, space eel.
0: The same for um, electricity and electric itty as in itty bitty, something really tiny. So
1: <laughs> what is <laughs> itty on its own?
0: <laughs> itty is nothing on its own as far as I know. Not um not yet, but if you don't want to waste your whole life saying itty bitty every time, <laughs> just say itty. <laughs> so we what is spelled with a C
2: mm-hmm.
0: in electricity is pronounced with an S in electricity and with a K in electric. Right? So this K sound, we can assume electric represents the underlying sound, only changes to an S sound, right? when what is attached to it is part of the same word. Now this is called velar velar softening, I believe is the name of this phenomena. And I don't know how much it's a real English phenomena versus one that is just inherited from Latin, but to a modern speaker with no knowledge of the history of the language, uh, this will certainly tell you the difference between electricity and electric
2: And so while the first and our spatial space eel example, while there we have different letters different words in that No, actually just different letters giving different sequences of sounds. If you weren't convinced yeah. by that, here's a case where we have the same letters. Right. Well, and we have
0: the exact same letters in two different <laughs> sequences of words in our next example. In the first example, listen carefully, is dogs led. As in dogs led us in singing a song. <laughs> this... <laughs> <laughs> If your syntax examples aren't fun, you're not doing it right. So the second word is dog sled, right? The thing that maybe the dogs are leading is a dog sled. So you could say dogs led a dog sled, right? Now dogs led, there's some big differences there. One of the biggest one is this S because it's a part of the word dog is pronounced as a Z, right? So... We have this uh, thing we discussed in the last podcast and in the last blog where um, this kind of S, when it attaches to something, it will be voiceless if it's following a voiceless sound and voiced if it's following a voiced sound. But this doesn't happen between words. So we don't get dog sled for dog sled. In fact, that may even sound like the other word. Our next example, um, fair play to raining cats and dogs. Our next example is cat zeal versus, again, from space, our cat's eel. So in cat zeal, one who loves cats, let's say, might have a lot of cat zeal. (laughs) Zeal is kind of a fervor. In case you're not a native speaker of English, zeal is kind of like an excitement or fervor for something. sure fervor didn't help things. Um, But cat zeal, for example, Tyler loves cats. You might say he's full of cat zeal. Right. But cats, eel, as in cats, plural or possessive, and then eel, the kind of fish that looks like a snake. Right. Again, the difference between the S and the Z sound tells us where the word boundary is. The next one is an even closer example. We have two proper names in English, Pat and Rick. Well, the if first I... word could be the verb. What did you do to Rick? I patted him. That's right. It could be a man, pat Rick. Right? So like maybe Rick is feeling down, needs a pat on the back or whatever. So pat Rick. Those are two separate words. But when you put it together, the T changes quite a bit to pat trick. In my English anyways, that T becomes kind of like a CH sound.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We'll call it palatalized in uh, linguistics. So I get pat trick for when it's one word and pat Rick when it's two words, right?
2: Speakers of our dialect or dialects always distinguish these two cases. These will never sound alike for me.
0: For me, they will always sound different too. So maybe it won't work for all varieties of world English, but we're hoping one of these uh, examples works for you. If you're a native speaker and the idea clicks, yes, there's a difference between uh, word boundaries and what happens within a word. Our next uh, example
2: here again, why are we going through all of these? <laughs> yes. The point
0: is so that, so the point is so that we have some notion of what a phonological word is an intuitive notion.
2: There are cases where we can tell there's a word boundary here because of the application or lack of application of the rule.
0: That's right. And our next one, because we're obsessed with Rick is <laughs> elect Rick versus electric. Again, it's the same kind Very of sound similar. change. Yeah. The same kind of thing. Um, and our final, uh, well, we have a, it's a close contested mm. election. And so <laughs> some people might argue elect-ron versus electron. And again, the same way the T sounds uh, change when they're at the end of the word versus when they're touching something at the word boundary. Yeah.
1: There's also a syllable break, right? That also helps you. Uh,
2: so again, what we're talking about in these second cases, in both these examples, electric electron, because of the, where the syllable boundary falls, mm-hmm. the T gets this much juicier sound rather than a nice dry T in elect. LA. <laughs> same with Patrick
0: and Patrick. So all, all three of those are focusing on a different angles on the same sound change. Now, our last one uh, is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. If you grew up in school in probably, I guess, where I did in around North Texas area, you probably had many students in your class named Chris. And one of the most common things is if someone has a common name, of course, you say the first letter of their last name. Uh, This is culturally part of my culture. I don't know how big it goes in America, but we have now a distinction between crispy, uh, as in toast that has been very well cooked, versus Chris P, one of the Chris's in your class, whose last name begins with P. So crispy versus crispy is two different, uh, two totally different things. And you can tell because the word boundary.
1: Um, My mom just called me, sorry. We're gonna have to stop. Oh, pause.
0: So our final example on uh, looking at sounds and word boundaries is crispy versus your classmate named Chris with the last name that begins with P, Chris P, right? So you can tell the difference between these uh, two sequences, Crispy and Crispy. In fact, Crispy could be a descriptor of P, perhaps. <laughs> um, Crispy, Crispy, right? That that sounds very similar, though. That's
1: That one sounds uh, more similar, yeah.
0: Yeah, especially when you put it in sequence but in isolation they sound pretty different
2: to me crispy versus crispy ordinarily with the initial the main stress is going to come at the end crispy mm-hmm. and that causes this p sound to aspirate Aspirate. more so breath coming out when you say crispy the final syllable okay. the when we say crispy
0: that's right and so the stress changes like 13 trumpets and 13 trombones so all right so uh moving on with phrases as you may remember, uh, we already told you only chunks move. So a phrase uh, is a constituent, right? A constituent um, is a chunk, right? So in case you didn't know what a constituent was, um, it's a, a whole unit, right? Or in the most technical uh, syntactic theoretical terms, we would say a chunk, right? So. I want to give you some constituency tests. Uh, Now, Hajj has spoiled this for us. It is OCM, only chunks move. So phrases move together. We're gonna look at this in an example sentence, which is Liz ate the licorice flavored pizza. we wanna test the constituency here of the object of eating. So we're gonna say the licorice flavored pizza is what Liz ate notice that if i don't move the whole chunk if i move it uh not at a good chunk boundary let's say it's not grammatical anymore so if i were to move part of it i would get flavored pizza is was excuse me flavored pizza is what liz ate the licorice right from liz ate the licorice flavored pizza now flavored pizza is what liz ate the licorice is ungrammatical native speakers um first language speakers are not going to like this sort of sentence, right? Showing that the licorice flavored pizza is a chunk. Now you can have chunks within chunks, but you have to you know, cut them at the right chunk border, let's say. So you can't Tyler, just take-
1: you've, uh, you've annotated a little <laughs> red outline around our asterisk.
2: For those of you watching, that's one symbol that we use in linguistics to show something is not acceptable or other meanings. Here, it shows that we know this is Ill-formed, it won't sound good. In uh, grammatical studies,
0: we use this asterisk to represent ungrammatical forms, so f- forms that first language speakers um, would find. Uh, sorry, do you say form so much, but poorly formed?
1: <laughs> Not <laughs> like, felicitous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The crazy thing, and it'll have to be a podcast for another day, is that some things are worse than other things, even when both are bad. So this is a. Again, a hedge point that I think that uh, is a little bit underappreciated.
2: some things are wronger than others so I, I had to step out real really quick, but I just want to make the point. Forgive me if it's repetitive, but all phrases are strings of words, but not all strings of words are phrases is what we're showing here.
0: that's right that's a good summation of we didn't say that Tyler, but that's a perfect summation of the point of this particular slide so uh when we get down to why this matters right. Uh, what we want to know is why should the language learner learn anything about phrases? Of course, if you are in love with syntax and you're passionate about it, then you need to learn about phrases. But if your goal is just to learn a language, why should you bother to care about it? Well, that's because phrases help you, right? The notion of the phrase scaffolds the learning of particles, affixes, clitics, and modifiers at the minimum, right? (laughs) whatever those are
1: whatever <laughs> those
0: are right So we quite, <laughs> and i'm careful to say modifiers now we didn't talk about particles mm-hmm. affixes and clitics so much uh but uh they're maybe all part of the phrase oftentimes and they're different kind of levels of attachment they're morphological items that have different levels of attachment mm-hmm. typically don't stand on their own outside of a phrase let's say
2: maybe just a real quick example we've already seen affixes in cat cats, that plural s one is a suffix, which is a kind of affix. A clitic in English is the word the, which can be will be pronounced the if a vowel sound follows. Uh, what's a good example of a modifier? So any I,
1: any I don't know. I've,
0: I've never heard that the is a clitic before. I've only ever heard that it was a particle.
2: Well, to me, the particle is kind of just a grab bag. I don't know that it's really. Is there a good definition of it? We, there is a boundary we can draw so, between so there's right. a line
0: between predic clitic particle clitic and affix. There's actually a kind of an intricate subject because one of the ways that you deduce these things is through process of elimination. Right? But essentially there's a there's phonological and syntactic behavior that is unique to each and affix, right, will always the main difference between an affix and a clitic is what level they attach to. The affix will always attach directly to the say lead word, the head, the root, the stem. But the clitic will attach always at the phrase level. There is an e- a clitic in English. It is the possessive, but it's a, it's not clear to see it. You would say like, you know, the queen of England's chair, yeah. and like... It's not the chair of England's chair, England. is it the queen mm-hmm. of the chair, you know, etc. Because it's attaching at it the whole phrase, and that shows you, right? Now, particles are not phonologically bound, but they're bound within the phrase, right? So it'd be very hard to show if a determiner like the is a particle or a clitic. We would, your idea about vowel uh, changing, I believe is the best evidence that it might be a clitic. Um, but unfortunately that happens also with all particles and prepositions and stuff like two, I would say like, do you want to swim? But I really, I'm saying this word too, but I say, but you almost an, an audible, probably after another alveolar, you're not even going to hear the alveolar and the T. But just to say, this is a, a whole huge topic, uh, Multiple dissertations worth of topics on how we separate these things. So we weren't going to get into it too much today. If you want to know more, please contact Lango. Get at me. And we might even have a podcast on this particular topic since it's coming up. Although it doesn't seem to be always a huge issue in the world's major languages. If you, like me, are describing undescribed languages or little described languages, you're going to have to do some careful detective work on is this a clitic or an affix? Is this a clitic or a particle? Because clitics act a little bit like both but and a modifier is a, that's a real grab bag, whatever you think is modifying. So we're going to kind of leave a pin in this for now and not do too much examples. Yeah, let's move on, but it's going to become relevant again. It, it'll all circle back. So what, why I bring it up is because there are different types of phrases when we go back to why phrases are useful to the learner and the phrases are labeled for their part of speech right now, in what the problem sense? is, of course, we haven't defined part of speech yet either. A lot of these <laughs> things are interdependent, right? Uh, this is natural with things that are complex. It's hard to look at their parts in isolation to understand the behavior of the whole. Typically complex things like language can't, you must look at the whole thing at once unfortunately. So we're talking about the, we're using this word on the screen, it's called the head of a phrase and that's what the phrase is uh, labeled after. So we're going to look right quick at parts of speech so that we know, um, so we can get our heads on straight for our phrasal heads, right? Okay, so ah. that was a low bar syntax joke. Nobody should appreciate that. I am so grateful for the groans and laughs. <laughs> you guys are my friends. I don't expect listeners to think that's funny. Low okay. Bar. So <laughs> moving on. Low bar. One, one way... Um, a maybe more technical term for part of speech is lexical category right lexicon refers to stock
2: of words that we have as speakers yeah,
0: le- i, was, I was think that's a great definition a stock of words that you have so a lexical has to do with words category of course is the bucket it's put in so this is also parts of speech some common lexical categories include nouns right. verbs adjectives adverbs and ad positions. Remember, an ad position is preposition or postposition.
2: Be aware that languages have different sets. The ones that we have for English are not applicable to all languages, so your mileage may vary.
0: Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going to give some specific examples how this notion is more slippery between... It's pretty clear in English. If you are an English speaker, you may have an idea about it, but this may not be the same when you study your new language. If you are new to english and listening to this podcast it may not be the same as your first language in english so how to do defi- how to define well a noun is not merely a person place or thing which is the definition i was given in grade school and probably mm-hmm. many americans at least were given this definition
2: good starting point. what's that a good starting point
0: yeah it's it, this is a, a semantic definition a, by a meaning definition and it's not a bad starting point but it's not quite crispy enough for (laughs) syntax, right? So the syntax itself often indicates what class the word is, right? So in English, uh, we may touch this a little bit later, but just for a quick example while it's uh, on your mind, the word jump itself is not necessarily a verb or a noun. If I say um, they jump a lot, then it's the verb. Right? You've got a subject, they, it's being modified by an adverb a lot. right? Well, if I say, um, we, maybe we're talking about someone at the trampoline park, and I would say, you did a, a nice jump. Well, in that case, we know it's got an adjective, a determiner. It is a noun. right? So we're, we'll touch this a little more in a second, but as with complex things, I've got to give you a lot at once.
2: That's what we're here for. Right, so we're going to do another a, a counter-example there. A lot of English words are marked, so to speak, for word class. Collide is only going to be a verb, not a noun, and collision, vice versa. Hmm. And that's
0: partially, of course, because what language it comes from into English would be very clear on
2: that. So There's there's native English examples we could mention, too, if you'd rather. Uh, let's see.
0: Quick and quickly.
2: Where it's marked. For, for instance... For
0: Uh, Anyhow, though, we're going to look at that actually a little bit on this next slide here, which is a typology of lexical category. So like Tyler was saying a couple minutes ago, the parts of speech are not universal, right? Not all languages have all parts of speech, and not all languages distinguish parts of speech in the same ways.
2: And let's also mention for the uninitiated what a typology is. Here we're using it in the sense of like a survey of what's around, right? Right yeah the different types that there are,
0: quite literally an ology of types
2: mm-hmm.
0: so uh some common types of phrases it seems that most languages have some corner of the grammar which distinguishes verbs from nouns mm-hmm. so uh i was I studied with dr. Tim Montler uh, a little bit about the klallam language um of Washington state and When you are learning Klollum, it seems like maybe there's no difference between verbs and nouns at all. They can all take a lot of the same modifiers. Um, They can all be inflected for person, for example. But uh, uh, Dr. Mottler has published a single paper which shows that in a tiny corner of the grammar, actually nouns are treated a little bit different than verbs. So it's not crucial if you, there are many people out there learning Klollum right now, And maybe for the first thing, it's not important to learn this distinction, but at some level of sophistication, they probably will learn the distinction. Whereas if you are learning a language where the distinction is very salient, like Portuguese, Mm -hmm. then you pretty much have to learn the distinction on the first lesson. So each language kind of has its own level of how, Mm -hmm. not only just how they distinguish nouns from verbs, but how much they distinguish nouns from verbs. Um, And other things... More slippery. For example, maybe languages don't, a certain language might not distinguish adjectives from adverbs. It's just any sort of modifier can attach to any sort of head, for example. Or maybe languages don't 100% distinguish adjectives from verbs. But more Mm -hmm. on that spicy possibility in a couple minutes.
1: Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Hint it's Korean.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a quick look. Nouns and verbs in English. Now, we already looked at this with jump a little bit, but they are distinguished nouns and verbs by their slot, their position, their spot in the syntax. So, again, um, our main character, Liz, Liz went for a run, Liz runs to work. Now, in Liz went for a run, then run is a noun. We know in part because it's got an article before it. Uh, which is the English indefinite article for nouns that begin with a consonant, right? Uh, And then Liz runs to work. Now, um, this z in runs uh, tells us English speakers that the subject of run is a third person, singular person in present tense. So this, even though it sounds like the plural in English, it's not, it's a different thing. And it tells us that it's a verb. Furthermore, their position in the Mm -hmm. sentence helps us know because English has a somewhat rigid word order of subject, verb, and object. So the morphology helps as we've looked at with, uh, I'm counting everything in the phrase from particles to affixes as part of the morphology in this example. Um, It's useful if you're describing languages as a note to think about things this way. But the morphology, though it's language specific, helps us. And in this case, within the noun phrase a run, the particle a helps us know what the noun is. And within the verb phrase runs to work, the agreement z on run helps us know what the verb is, right? So verbs can, some common patterns, if if you're going to a language you know nothing about, some things to have in mind. Maybe these will be upset, but probably this is how it's going to be. Verbs can be inflected for tense and aspect,
2: right? And just, let's remind people what tense refers to.
0: So tense are things people camp in. Uh, what <laughs> happens is, is they put up some cloth and some, I'm joking, of course. Tense, when we refer to English is T-E, or when we refer to language is T-E-N-S-E. And we're talking about time of the event, past, present, future, typically. Aspect is more a, a little bit more of a detailed information. For example, has the event been completed or not? Is this a habitual event? Right, things like this are included. English doesn't have the most, most rich aspect, or maybe even tense. Some might argue, but we can in the end negotiate everything, as every language can.
2: Quite a bit going on. With something that uh, non-native speakers struggle with quite a bit.
0: It's challenging. No matter, in my experience, no matter what the second language is, you're going to struggle a bit with tense and aspect. Um, so what to look for in nouns is that nouns are typically inflected for things like plurality and definiteness, right? Now, there are counterexamples to both of these generalizations, but I wanted to note there, what might not be predictable is that there are indeed some languages that mark the definiteness of nouns on verbs, right? Mm -hmm. So one example is the Owa language of Papua New Guinea, which was uh, grammar of which was written as a dissertation by my former office mate Russell Barlow that's how I happen to know that example though there are other examples I know sometimes syntacticians look for a definiteness correlation when someone claims there's object agreement which was the case with Ola if I recall correctly All right so these are what you want your expectations to be if you're studying a brand new language though you can they might be a Uh, upset by it. I think if you study a major world language, this will probably pan out pretty well. But if you start studying the great diversity of worlds languages, you'll start finding more counterexamples. Okay, now I told you a little bit before about what the head of a phrase is, right? So now let's talk about a noun as the head of a noun phrase. What goes inside the noun phrase? This is English specific. But we like things, us speakers of English, like things like nouns and adjectives, determiners, right, and n- numerals, quantifiers, etc., inside of our noun phrases. Um, in some theoretical frameworks, right, some ways of looking at it, elements within a phrase can be the head of their own phrase, right? So some theories will say that... Uh, an adjective within a noun phrase heads its own adjective phrase, even though it's subordinate, let's say. Some theories, perhaps the most prominent theory of formal syntax today proposes that a determiner is in fact the head of the, you know, there's a determiner phrase and within that is a noun phrase, right? Other theories propose a determiner is just a part subordinate to the noun phrase. This is not super crucial for you as the language learner. If you're just curious about it, uh, you can Probably go do a lot of study and maybe even write a dissertation on this exact topic. But just to say that we need to acknowledge that the elements have their own meaning too. What's interesting is in English, speakers know the order of elements. If you have a lot of adjectives or descriptors or modifiers within a noun phrase, people are going to know which ones go in which order. So I'm going to give you a small example. Um, We've sketched out here a phrase structure rewrite rule, which is uh, within our noun phrase, determiners go at the beginning. Modifiers go in the middle and can be stacked. That's what our formalism, if you're watching a screen, that's what our formalism means. But don't worry too much about formalism. And then finally, it ends with a noun. Of course, we know this isn't always true because we have a couple post-nominal modifiers like galore. Right? You can say we have noun phrases galore.
2: More relative clauses can go there.
0: Yeah, relative clauses uh, can go there. But they have their own structure. That's like a well within of course, depends on your theoretical framework. I'm not assuming everybody believes like me, but just to keep it simple, this is a nice little phrase uh, structure rule you can look at. And we have a simple one here as our first example, the yeah. blue dog.
2: Let's read aloud right. for, the, for those just listening the, the structure is debt for determiner is the first element in a noun phrase, optionally modifiers, any number of them. And then finally, the noun is the last component as we have it just Yeah, this is
0: here. Prototypical noun phrase is going to look like that. So here we have a simple one here the blue dog, the is the determiner, blue is our single modifier, and dog is our head of the noun phrase. Now we get a more complex one, the 10 angry blue dogs, and we have stacked these modifiers. Now we have three modifiers. Now I think maybe all is acceptable. I'm going to see what you guys think. But if we start scrambling these modifiers, I think Uh first language speakers will probably agree the 10 angry blue dogs is the right order. Better than the blue 10 angry dogs or Mm -hmm. the angry blue 10 dogs. If you say the angry blue 10 dogs, we're expecting a context like, oh, are you talking about the angry blue 9 dogs or the angry blue 10 dogs, right? We're expecting some sort of contrast like this so when you upset the natural order it actually includes certain let's say presuppositions although I'm not going to get too far into semantics on this but just to say first language speakers typically know which order is best and when you upset the order they're expecting some sort of extra information right I have a challenge for any listeners what is the longest noun phrase you can make in English now, if you are a fan of the theory of recursion, you might say that you can make an endless noun phrase. In which case, get started now. Yeah, <laughs> but the problem is pragmatically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have to sleep at some time. You the know, it's going to end.
1: Right, the, yeah, well, it has I, to be speakable, so there's limits to that.
0: Yes, there is a there is a theoretical limitation, and then a limitation in practice, and those things do not align in this case.
1: And well, the listener, how much memory they, do they have to retain what you're going to say?
0: That's so crucial. I think that's often one of the most overlooked aspects in theoretical linguistics, although now, of course, it's very popular, I guess, to do a lot of perception-based stuff. But yeah, True. how much can your how much can your listener really remember? Be mindful of that when you're making phrases in your second language with 13 adjectives. <laughs> Anyhow, send us your longest NPs, tag us on Twitter, Twitter. Uh, if they're real good, we'll RT. So moving on. Now, I want to tell you a story the Jedi wouldn't tell you. No, the Jedi would tell you is that you can have headless noun phrases, right? So what is a headless noun phrase? You can have a noun phrase with no overt noun as the head. There is a Sanskrit word for this, bahuvrihi, uh, which is an exocentric compound right? A type of, so this is a type of headless noun phrase. Uh, Now, Bahuvrihi is an example of itself. Uh, The Sanskrit grammarians uh, very cleverly came up with types of compounds, and they often, in most phenomena, named it after an example of that. And that might be a good thing for us to do in mainstream modern linguistics, too. So So the word,
1: uh, Tyler, leave, it literally means much rice right having a lot of rice right
0: for a rich person i believe
1: referring to fertile land but um now it denotes just the quality of being rich yeah yeah so that example of the word itself is a cool example
0: yeah so um we have these in english too although i was trying to think if we have one like that in english and my mind is running blank like (laughs) breadwinner actually has the winner in it so it's not very good things like this but anyways, a bahu rihi is a class of compound which is externally headed. Some of my favorite examples in English come from uh, the species of duck <laughs> names. So one species of duck is called a canvas back, right? A duck which has one which has a canvas back. But the haver of it, the haver of the canvas back is not overtly mentioned, right? The same for uh, ringneck. It's and not a kind of back
2: is the point too. I think that's
0: The same with ring neck. It's not a type of neck. It's a type of duck which has a ringed neck. The same for redhead, which is... I guess, can you use that for maybe humans too? I think about it as a duck thing.
2: Mm.
0: You could see where my mind is at. (laughs) Um, Right, so... uh, In English, we use them a lot for what I'm calling as schoolyard put-downs. So a lot of these tend to be pejorative in English. I tried to pick ones that are not that mean... But if you are a first language speaker of English or even a savvy second language speaker, you will understand the point of this and know where it's going. My examples are Four Eyes, which I have been called a lot as a child because I wear glasses.
1: Aww.
0: It's cool. I'd be <laughs> five eyes if I could. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I'm
0: here. doesn't bother me. <laughs> <Hey y'all. laughs> yeah, like uh, uh, Four Eyes is not modifying eyes it's saying
2: if someone calls you four eyes they're not talking to your eyes
0: (laughs) yeah they're saying one who has four eyes right um i'm ashamed to say when i was you know a child i called my little brother booger brain a lot that was one i said to him maybe he doesn't love it Uh, and i apologize if you're listening (laughs) but he isn't (laughs) what a bully uh, (laughs) what a bully i know i didn't mean to be but i said (laughs) I called him Booger Brain, so I know that that's one you can come up with. I have never called anyone dog breath, but you could imagine that someone might use that as a put-down, meaning you have dog breath by Mm -hmm. calling you dog breath, right? So um, particularly if you can think of nicer things to say, the challenge (laughs) is what's your best Bahuvrihi? Again, you know, tag us on Twitter. If it's good, we'll RT. (laughs) give us your
2: spiciest insult. I can take it. I'll I'll field those.
1: Yeah, my favorite is hound's tooth for the fabric. All right. No name right. for the. It looks like little dog teeth.
2: That dovetails nicely.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Now something we're not going to talk about quite as much in this podcast, but a little bit is the verb phrase. Now, what's inside? Obviously, at least verbs. Right. Or a verb. Mm, Right. There's this other thing, though, called a verb complement. Right. So syntactic objects are complements of the verb. This is how we view it in linguistics. And I'm about to give you some easy evidence. You know, if the licorice flavored pizza was not evidence enough for you, Mm -hmm. we can look at this VP. Uh, We have a first we have a VP of a so-called intransitive sentence. Now, intransitive sentences have no object. So we get Liz slept. If I were to do an OCM test and say, what did Liz do? You might say slept is what Liz did, right? Now our second sentence, Liz ate the cake. You might say something like, what did Liz do? And I might say ate the cake. Now the complement within the VP, the object noun phrase is itself a constituent within a constituent. Because I could say, what did liz eat and you would say the cake right so um you'll notice this when you start studying languages that there is this uh kind of special relationship between the object and the verb sentences are generally implied to have subjects uh for in english it's like a it's like a a really highly ranked priority you got to have some subject that's why we say things like it's rain, it's raining. What is it in it's raining, right? Like, it
2: referred to? But there's a counter example of our very important class of utterances where you really kind of have to omit the subject and that is things like thank you. Man. Never will say I thank you. Well, we do occasionally. Rarely do we say I thank you.
0: Generally mm-hmm. for imperatives and that's cross-linguistic. Imperative, Generally too. imperatives are you, you drop the subject because you're thank addressing. You. Thank you cannot be an imperative. I agree. Yeah,
2: all right. I agree.
0: But thank you is more like a, a bit idiomatic and idiomatic thing. But just to say that the property is, even in big classes like imperatives, you can have one where
1: mm-hmm. you can insert the subject. Yeah. It's marked
0: to insert the subject. Mm-hmm. Right. You get out of here. In super, you just super, do it. Super polite speech, someone might say, like, I sincerely thank you or something, but it's marked, right? The same way, like, if I say, like, you know, Tyler, eat the cake, you know, it's marked where I should just say, eat the cake,
2: right? But that, that's not a subject. I wouldn't say. It's gonna gonna be as soon as I do the action, and you sum it up that way. But that was that's what we call evocative. It's, you're using my name as a form of address to me. It's different from a subject of a sentence. What about oh, we'll Otherwise talk about the S, right? Tyler eats the
0: cake.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. Hmm,
1: okay. There
0: is. I, I think that like, um, well, it's worth it's worth checking. I've got to think about. Yeah, I think. Um, there are definitely going to be languages where you're going to get second person agreement and subject agreement in imperatives, but that should be a podcast for another day. I, I'll go down the rabbit hole on that. Cause I've looked at imperatives in uh, languages of Borneo. So it's little described languages, which you're not going to find a lot of research at, but I've, this is where I came up with some of these generalizations, but it, if you love this stuff, you gotta leave us some comments and let us know and we'll do a whole podcast on it. What's not to love. I don't know. I love it all. I just think we'd talk about it for the next 10 hours. (laughs) Um, But anyways, we're going to go on and talk about why is the compliment part of the VP, right? So because they act as a constituent, right? So we actually kind of talked about this just a second ago when I say they eat eat the cake. I picked it so there's less agreement problems. Eat the cake is what they do. Now, when we say they eat the cake, they eat the cake is our example sentence. When we move certain things, it doesn't work anymore. Thus showing us it's for sure a chunk, a constituent. So eat the cake is what they do. Totally fine because eat the cake is a constituent and they eat the cake. But eat is what they do the cake. Uh, I think maybe people re- recover the meaning here, but it's certainly not. It's uh, it's marked speech again to use the same term. It sounds like maybe something a, a broadcaster might do if they're speaking before they know the end result. I hear I watch MMA a lot and there was this he's he doesn't work for the company anymore, but this former famous broadcaster and he would say things like "Um, punched him in the face is what he did like this kind of Yoda talking type thing a lot or whatever. And but in normal, typical conversational speech, if you say something like eat is what they do with the cake, that's very strange. So that lets you know there's a special relationship with eat and the cake. Now, another bad example that sounds similar, but further shows a constituency is um, eat is what they, the cake do. Right. Mm. So if you switch around the auxiliaries, it still doesn't solve things. that's why I put that in there. Some people might think, Oh, well, that's because you've got this do support in there from your test. No, if you move that stuff around, it's still bad.
1: Mm-hmm. This is even more marked to me.
0: Since we're talking about eating cake, um, I have some food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> right? Food for thought is the sentence a constituent, right? Because you can do the whole thing as reported speech. I used they eat the mm-hmm. cake as a constituent a lot of times now, right? So uh, if you were a theoretical syntactician, you surely already have a take on this and you may want to fight to the death over it. But if you're not, if you're not a theoretical um, syntactician, this is something that might be a good way for you to a good thing for you to think about, and I would suggest you make your own generalizations Um, in an introductory syntax class, it's not uncommon to teach someone that S is the head of the whole uh, we have a type Mm -hmm. of formalism that we use to diagram sentences in syntax, we call them trees S stands for And S stands for sentence because some people view the sentence as a whole constituent. Um, And that's a nice way to look about it and think about it when you're a language learner, in my opinion. So uh, maybe we should look at a little bit of this in action. Actually not, we're actually gonna take a step back now and I'm just gonna look a little bit about nouns and verbs in Portuguese for our first um, part of comparatively speaking today, right? So uh, as discussed in a previous slide, for nouns, in Portuguese, you get a certain type of agreement, which is gender and number. Now, remember, gender in Portuguese can correlate with...
2: Natural gender.
0: Yeah, it can correlate with uh, the gender of a person. A speaker. Mm. Of a, or or of, an, of a perceived gender of an animal. But it's really kind of, in most cases, acts as a noun class. Um, it's not... It's a type of classification. So we're, we're not uh, trying to step on any toes with this gender example. We're not talking about, we're not enforcing binary gender. This is the way This Portuguese is
1: grammatical works. gender.
2: Right. It's really about noun classes. We, we The term comes from language study originally. It was a grammatical term, this word gender. Some languages have two, some have three, some have, there may be some four gender ones, but that's about the upper limit, I think.
0: There's Bantu languages with over a dozen
2: those are noun classes though that's slightly different from gender i mean it functions much the same but i think you can delineate between those two types of things
0: they do because they have the concord and everything it does function much the same. anyways i have a question for you tyler that is a small aside since we brought up this um controversial topic or interesting topic from a linguist perspective i have heard that the word gender is a doublet for the word genre and that they me? both mean kind originally
2: Kind is cognate. Genus is the third the,
0: the triplet. Oh, so kind <laughs> cool. is the English word, the old Germanic word for it. Right. Kind of thing, we mean not kind is in nice.
2: They may be related too, I'm not sure, but yeah, kind of the noun. Grouping things. Genus. Genus, genre, and oh also, yeah, genera, the plural. You
1: can see mm-hmm. the R. It's a, a nice mnemonic to remember that it what it means for. For our contact scare for grammatical
2: gender. Right. So
0: when you look at grammatical gender in Portuguese on nouns, going back to what we were originally talking about, uh, my example here is O Gato, the cat. Now, the O at the beginning is the article for the masculine gender in Portuguese, right? And this cat, Gato, ends with an O, even though I'm pronouncing it a bit with an O sound. That's a, a process in Portuguese. Um, if you mix the article with the noun ending, such as a gato, it is ungrammatical, because they have to agree with each other. Now, they agree in gender, but they also agree in number. Number being the distinction between single and plural. In gatos, the cats, if you were to say, oh, gatos, so you got the gender right, but not the plurality, it would be wrong. Right. The same if you said, oh, gato, but it was one, that would be wrong. They have to agree That's
2: there. The asterisk for show that something is wrong. Do not say these if you're learning Portuguese. This is That's right. Saying.
0: If you're looking at the slide, we have marked the incorrect forms with stars. Now, verbs also have their own agreement system. Verbs agree in person, number, and tense. So they also agree whether it is plural or singular, but the agreement forms are entirely different. Not only that, person, number, and tense on a verb in Portuguese are all one suffix or one morpheme, if it's not a suffix, if it's just a part of it. It's all, we call this kind of morphology, as a note in linguistics, we call this kind of morphology synthetic morphology because it's all put together. So, in the phrase, I eat, eu como, if you, let me read the examples and I'll tell you the bad ones and it'll all make sense. (laughs) I eat, eu como, right? Como, this O at the end, indicates first person, me, singular, not us, me, and present tense. For third person, singular, present tense, she, she eats, you get... El call me. Right? And it sounds like an I sound at the end, E, but it's spelled with an yeah, E sound like the letter E in English. Can you show us? It's on the screen. Oh. It's the next example. Not showing up for
2: me. There it goes. There we are. So okay. maybe we should I just want to briefly take a step back and clarify what we mean by agreement. The, you have agreement as whenever one form of one word harmonizes or responds to some feature in another word in the, within the same phrase, in, in both these cases with the noun and the verb, right? We're right. saying U and gatu are two words, and the one has to match the other. They agree.
0: Right, and the same with EO and "como," right? So there I have the third. Now you can see, now you know the third person singular present tense is KOME, spelled C-O-M-E, but maybe pronounced KOME in fast speech, you get ela come. Now, if I had eu come, that would be wrong. Come. That would be wrong, right? I ate, past tense, I ate is eu comi. And that one is spelled with the letter I. She ate, ela comeu. Right? Now, when you start mixing those, it becomes wrong. It can be wrong even, right? If you mean present tense and say past tense, that can be wrong. But the main point of... I mean, it might be grammatically correct, but you said what you didn't mean to. And I know uh, when I was new to Portuguese, one mistake I made a lot was speaking in present tense when I meant past tense. Maybe that's not a common mistake, but that was a mistake I made a lot. So my sentences were grammatical. but People did not understand the meaning that I intended. So that's also Mm -hmm. possible. And it's a less bad error than mixing up person, but still relevant. And the point of all this is, that when you look at the morphology what happens to the words as you inflect meaning or tense or whatever is different for nouns than verbs and this is a good argument that these word classes are very different in portuguese noun and verbs are not the same they're very distinct in portuguese
2: uh so let me just point out yeah we have we can have the similar sounding and similar spelled marker in these two cases
0: but <laughs> they different,
2: mean different things so in principle we can separate them from each other completely. Happens to that's be right. an O in the first singular Komu and also an O in Ugatu. But that's just an accident, not the same O, so to speak.
0: That's right. O is just a common letter or sound.
2: Words need vowels and there's
0: only those five <laughs> words. words need vowels, you know. That's don't true. tell don't tell every dialect of Berber. Not every <laughs> certain dialect. I just don't recall. I remember studying a puzzle in Duncan Steriade's class, nice. where we solved one where they allow all sorts of things to be the nucleus of a syllable, including K. So,
2: cool.
0: words need vowels. That's just like your opinion, dude.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Does save that one? Okay, save that <laughs> observation. Okay, so our next uh, topic here is comparatively speaking. And we're going to look at verbs and adjectives in Korean and Lisa is going to tell us a little bit about it as the Korean teacher here at LANGO.
1: All right. Um, yeah, so verbs and adjectives and quotes here um, and this is something that I really uh, realized in Dr. Matt Shibatani's class at Rice. Um, he taught a syntax class where we looked at um, sort of the prototypical notions of word class and then we poked holes in it for different languages. I looked at Korean and um, discovered that really um, adjectives in Korean are actually verbs. So let me tell you more about that. So in Korean, the category of verb is much more comprehensive. It's a very important word class. Um, It uh, helps you define a lot of semantic contrast in the language and it includes both words that denote actions, so action verbs, and words that denote states. And I like to call them descriptive verbs. Um, You can also think of them as adjectives if it helps you as a learner. Um, But importantly, they behave like verbs in that they can take tense and then other markings on the verb, like uh, speech style.
2: They also go in the same place in the sentence.
1: Right. Yeah, so syntactic criteria, how do you distinguish these? Um, there's a number of strategies. The first strategy is for action verbs. They're gonna form their present tense um, in one of the speech styles called the plain or narrative style, All right. And I have the form here. It's nunda, and the parentheses shows Uh, the the syllable that might be added on if the verb stem ends in a consonant. And we have one example here um, that adds a syllable. And Tyler is gonna help me uh, put up the romanization here. For those of you who are, don't know any Korean at all. Okay, so our first example has Tyler and I, I'm gonna use your Korean name. Jangmuni 김치를 먹는다. Right? And we have changun, the subject marked with an E, 장문이. The object kimchi, which is kimchi, delicious. And uh, the object marked here with l, And then here's our verb. The verb stem is mock for eat. And then we're gonna add nunda, the plain or narrative speech style. Right? And we know when we do that, that it is an action verb. It also comes at the end of the sentence. All right, so Korean is a verb final language and a lot of elements can drop out, but you need that verb at the end there. All right, next example, I'm gonna bring Pita in to my lesson too. We have Peter is working out. Peter ga And this time we're gonna add the other variant uh, suffix here which attaches on to a verb stem that ends with a vowel. All mm-hmm. right, so we have pita subject marker ga, undong, which is ex- uh, exercise or working out and 을, the object marker and then our action verb ha which means do becomes handa okay. in the present tense.
2: Just for uh, just to repeat the ninda in the first example and the in the second mm-hmm. those are the same thing.
1: Yep, so they're just variants uh, that depend on what the verb stem is, whether there's a consonant uh, in the verb stem or a vowel. So we have 먹는다, eating, and then handa doing. 운동을 한다, working out. All right, so that's the action verb. (laughs) And then descriptive verbs, on the other hand, they're going to form their present tense without an added suffix. And this is very helpful because um, a lot of times this looks like the dictionary form, which also ends in just da here, or infinitive form. Um, but descriptive verbs are unique in that they can form the present tense without adding anything. It looks like the dictionary form. In the first example here, we have Korean is fun. Hangogon chemi ita. Right? Hangugo, Korean language, nun, the topic marker, and chemi. Eat is fun. We just end in a ta, which funness
2: exists fun. there, sort of. Do it. Funness exists. Indeed. Ta,
1: for I agree. A bit. It can, this form can oscillate actually be fused to chen too, which is very fun. Chembita. All right. Second example: The weather is good. So similarly, here we have uh, the verb chuta to be good, and nashi weather, and here no change here, just uh, same same as the infinitive form ta.
2: So we're saying the ninda cannot apply to these verbs, right? We couldn't say
1: right ninda.
2: That would sound bad.
1: Right. That is marked. That's not how to form the descriptive verb form in the present tense.
2: Right. no right. Got cho- nope, yeah.
1: marked yeah yeah so that might be a common uh mistake if you just think it's a, a different word class here but it's a verb and um you know that it's descriptive because it takes this particular it takes no suffix here
2: and that yeah that, that, so whenever you see that suffix that'll tell you this is an action verb not a descriptive verb it's a good thing to take note of as you're studying Korean.
1: Hopefully my students are tuning in here. Um, This is a a good thing to keep reminding yourself, especially with uh, English gravity, you expect adjectives to do something very different. All right, strategy number two, action verbs are gonna have the present tense ad nominal form. So whenever they modify a noun, they're gonna show up with this form un attached to them. And here the variant is shown. Uh, it's either going to add a new syllable, un, or have the, uh, the n sound uh, fuse right into the verb stem there. So, continuing with my um, eating kimchi example, because Tyler loves kimchi, I have here, um, we're going to modify changmun with eating. So, changmun, who is eating kimchi. And here we'll have the verb stem mok. And we're going to attach nun because it ends with a consonant. So kimchirer mong nun changmun.
2: Okay, so yeah, it was the same verb we had on the last slide. Mm -hmm. Here, it's not sentence final because it's not functioning as the verb in the clause. Right.
1: Yep. And um, you want more here because there needs to be a verb, right, to to form a sentence here. I um, yeah, it's unfinished, but yeah, the position also tells you. All right, and then the second example we have Peter who is working out. Um, so here we're going to move the action form here um, and apply nun before Peter. So 운동을 하는 Peter, and here we have the nun variant 운동을 하는 Peter.
2: So. Actually, here we should have said that the base form is nun because that's what we see in both cases. Seems to be invariant.
1: Whoops! Han, you're okay. right. Oh, yeah. I should say nun here. Let's fix that annotation there. Ne, well, nun. Yin, han.
2: I'm noticing. Meng, nun, han. So derived from a verb root, but working like our adjective in that it's pointing at a noun, basically mm-hmm. modifying a noun. Hmm and the noun being the head of its part is phrase final. In
1: yeah, so this is in the present tense form, but actually, yeah, you can make a past tense adnominal too by using un. So <laughs>
2: just to Related throw it in. Slightly the different suffix, right?
1: Yeah. All right, so how uh, to distinguish descriptive verbs from the action verb. Um, here's the form with the present tense ad form un, right, and I have an asterisk there because there are some variant Forms variant strategies as well, but this is the main one. So I have here. Continue on with my examples. Good weather. We can attach un to chota to be good. Chun nashi weather. Okay, and my example with the verb stem in a vowel is yet with that to be pretty, and to that we can attach the variant form ne. Yeppun. Mm-hmm. So yep, not pretty close.
2: Worth noting that the U uh, in the second case, that sound uh, written, e, U written E-U, it belongs to the root in that one, yep, da mm-hmm. whereas in the upper one, jo un, it belongs to the suffix. Very so true. I'm showing the boundary with a little hyphen in Roman letters.
1: Very nice. Yeah, that's an important class of these uh, descriptive verbs too because they have some variant patterns. Mm-hmm. All right, and to make it even more Tim, a small set of words can function as either one of these, either action or descriptive verbs. And this is a wonderful example because it also has the nominalized form of of this word. Um, It's kuta, which means to be big. And here in the sentence, I have it: uh, the tall person's height is still increasing. So we have kun here at the beginning, kun saram. The tall person, in its adjective form here, or descriptive verb form. Kun ki the height, kunda still, and then kunda increasing in the action verb form.
2: So here we have it yes. in both, yeah, both functions. As I said, the root ku is common to that first word and the last word in the clause, but they belong to different categories. So tall and, then, and increasing.
1: Mm-hmm. And you can also tell by the position in the sentence the slot in the sentence. All right. There are also many strategies to convert descriptive verbs into action verbs. And these are the two main ones, but there's many more. And to learn all of them, you gotta take Korean with us. Um, But the first one, the beginners will learn. um, And that's by adding all or ahada to be or do X to the verb stem. So here's an example of the descriptive verb form. 좋다 means to be good, and then when we add ahada hada it becomes to like something. It requires an object there. Now this is a cool example because there's additional semantic differences here. So if you say chutta, um, it could, it's a little bit ambiguous as to whether it's good or you like something. But when you use this other form, the action verb form, chwahada, it's very clear that um, you're expressing that you like something, a particular object there. <laughs> like it? All right. And then by adding another strategy is by adding or achida. And this is a really cool form as well. It means to become X. And my two examples is chupta to be cold, and when we add the o-chita, this form fuses here; it becomes chū wa-chita to become cold.
2: A little change to the form of the root, but it's mm-hmm. the same
1: thing. Little change, and it becomes more of an action verb.
0: Very neat.
2: The chi this one does not occur as its own verb root, right? It can only be a suffix. Am I
1: right? Yeah. It it has to. Yeah. I can't stand alone. Yeah. Chi da.
2: Well, it's a suffix. It's an affix, and of course, it's a morpheme. Everything's a morpheme, but it's not a root. Not a standalone
1: thing. Right. Yeah.
0: And all of these examples kind of uh, actually hint at something else that's typologically observed across mm-hmm. linguistics: is that um. There's actually a lot of different types of verbs, meaning like act, active and stative, for example, are types mm-hmm. of verbs. Um, and it's neat how different languages um, kind of indicate these differences morphologically. And like our probably becoming our favorite saying here, all grammars leak via Edward mm-hmm. Sapir. Usually there's a point where it doesn't, well, there's descriptive verbs and action verbs, except when there's not, <laughs> except
1: <laughs> when there's not, right? Yeah, yeah. But hopefully, that um, is something delightful for learners as well, right? It would be really uh-huh. boring if there weren't any any variants to think about.
0: In my opinion, yes. As a as a current Korean language student, uh, this is extremely interesting. I hope that uh, all the Korean language students out there eventually hear this pres- this comparatively speaking section.
2: Um, Snip it sometime. Hope yeah, so. Definitely. Super interesting.
1: Come to Lango, learn Korean from us.
2: Well, so then that leads us to the Chinese segment, nouns versus verbs in Chinese. So in Chinese, famously, there's no morphology. There are no suffixes or prefixes added to mark inflection or any of that. Chinese I think this is out. a
1: big selling point for Chinese because people are very intimidated, I think, to about Chinese. There's tones and a lot of you know, the, writing the characters, which I think is really fun, but it might be intimidating to think about. Really um, yeah, fun. when you get to the morphology. Nothing there. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs>
2: all of that call, call me stuff, which is such a headache when you're learning a romance language, which I also love, of course. I love all the romance languages. But in Chinese, there's none of that. You don't have to worry about inflection or agreement. You just say the words as they want to come out naturally.
1: You just Some have to
0: remember what happens if there's a lot of two, three.
1: What's
0: up, Peter? What? Sorry, I lost the last thing you said, Tyler. I thought you were done talking, started talking. I couldn't hear you.
1: You just have to remember what? The number for four? What do you mean? Oh,
0: what happens if all the three tones are in a row? That's what you have.
1: Oh, to no changes. morphology,
2: but you do have to remember some stuff.
1: True. Yeah. Whew.
2: yeah. It's pretty compact, though, once you get those, those few tone changes of Mandarin, which is the most important dialect for learners. But anyway, let's get into the meat of this one. This lesson: Chinese has no verb agreement or noun inflection. Plural marking is a thing; it's only done on pronouns, though. I, you, he, she, and if there's a few nouns for humans, they can take this little suffix "men." There, there are suffixes. I, I shouldn't say they don't exist, but they're think of them as more optional in English. In English, it's required to say "children" if it's more than one.
1: But in mm-hmm. Chinese,
2: just naming the noun in a single form does for all of it. Many words appear in both roles talking about noun and verbs, so both noun or verb. And in fact, our English glosses for this show the same behavior as Chinese. My first example, ni," well, means I love you. What I've put in brackets here, the i-ni part is our verb phrase. It's got the verb I and an object. So, the, the part in blue, I, it means to love. Here it's used as a verb. We can tell from the syntax, from what it's between, what's going on in the sentence. One agent and an experiencer or object or whatever you want to call it. Two nouns involved here. And in the next example, this was the name and refrain of a song that was everywhere when I lived in China 15 years ago. <laughs> Woman, the I means our love. So, here we see a little bit of that morphology, which is mostly not used. Wa is the same in both these examples, refers to I, me. Mun makes a plural and this little da makes a possessive of any pronoun. So the love, that's our head noun in this case, no longer a verb, modified by possessor, our love. Make sense?
1: Yeah, that da does a lot of work, I think.
2: It does, It's, Mm -hmm. it's a magical word. It does many wonderful things. Basically it, that, that term ad nominal that you used a few minutes ago in the Korean one mm-hmm. is what this da does. What does da do? It points at a following noun phrase giving you, telling you that there's modifying information preceding it.
1: And there could be quite a big phrase. I remember um, when I sat in in your class doing an exercise where we we bracketed all the da phrases and some of them were so long. It was really interesting.
2: Whole sentences or
1: whole sentences
2: can have modify lifted. nouns. So the thing that I bought yesterday, in English, a relative clause following its noun, thing. In Chinese, that'll proceed, it'll be the I buy yesterday, e thing. Mm -hmm.
1: Which makes for some great translations.
2: So note that words like I in Chinese can be both, some things will only be nouns, but it's the rule in Chinese rather than the exception that these things things shift word class.
0: So the Chinese word I is fairly similar to the English word love where you could say our love or I love you. That's why one of the reasons maybe the gloss works so well. Or...
2: Yes. This could, same behavior in, across both languages. So it's a different case from that collide collision where English word classes is, is marked on the word itself. Chinese mm-hmm. doesn't do that. Let's go to the next. How can we tell this raises the question if there's no morphology like we had in Portuguese and in Korean where it's nice and easy to identify a verb or a thing derived from a verb, from a noun. How do you know one from the other in Chinese? How can we tell a noun or a noun phrase from a verb or a verb phrase? There are some helpful syntactic criteria. We, in, as in any language, we can quantify nouns, most nouns in Chinese. We can specify an amount of them. So when we do that with a noun in Chinese, like we want to say two sheets of paper, yang <laughs> head nouns at the end, ji means paper, And the quantifying phrase consists of a numeral and what we call a measure word or a classifier. English has some things like this, but it's much more prevalent in Chinese. We talk about having two cups of tea rather than saying two teas. So a cup in English is a measure word and a head noun would be tea in that example. And and here also two sheets of paper. We could say two papers, but that has a different meaning from saying two sheets of paper. And it's
1: also sheet because there's no plural marking
2: on it. That's also, yeah, we don't, oh, two sheet paper, yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna inflect, we're gonna show that agreement for plurality of the noun. Chinese doesn't have that kind of plural marking. And an important point that I wanna make here is this kind of a quantifying phrase, yang jiang, is always gonna precede its noun. So we have phrase structure rules. They say, if you wanna speak Chinese, you gotta put the quantifying part before the noun in Chinese. But verbs don't do that. If you wanted to say you did a certain verbal action a number of times, that numeral phrase is going to follow the head verb. So there's one way. If ever you see these numeral quantifiers and where they are in relation to the thing, you'll know which word class you're dealing with.
1: I just want to appreciate that character real quick too, Yang with yeah. the t- the
2: it's got the tunis written all two pairs, over it.
1: yeah,
2: <laughs> it's symmetry. Okay, another helpful criterion. You're not off the hook
1: yet. <laughs>
2: huh?
1: Oh, I said you're not off the hook.
2: <laughs> More to say, that's right. Another helpful criterion when it comes to telling a noun from a verb is negation. This is a big one. So of course we don't use a negative all the time. Some things are non-negative, but whenever you do see something negated in Chinese as a learner, pay attention. It's going to, The type of negation used is gonna tell you about the word class of the thing being negated. Verby things, as I've labeled them, like in Korean, all, well, all of what are taught as adjectives in Chinese are really a subclass of verbs. Verbs, adjectives are verby things. And these in Chinese and Mandarin are always negated with bu, that's the big one. So, gao means tall, bu it is not tall. We don't need a verb that corresponds to is in English because gao itself is verbal. Bu means does not study, will not study. Nouns, however, that's not true. We can't just put bu right before a noun to negate it. And in fact, the English not functions the same way. We can say not tall, but we can't say not student. Well, I mean, you can get not sentences where you have not student together, but in Chinese, it'll never be 不学生, It'll be mm-hmm. Here we have we need that copula, a verb, a linking verb meaning to be. The shu has to be there to negate a a nouny meaning. So-and-so is not a student. So this tells us, when we see things like this, here, because it needs the shu that's got to be a noun. Whereas "xué" and "gāo" and these other examples, those are not nouns, they're verbi.
1: Very nice, verby. Also, uh, so the marking here is for what we were talking about, that tone shift that happens.
2: I like to be redundant and really clear when I mark things. The basic value of this, of this ne- negative word is bu, with a falling tone. Sharp-eyed readers and hearers will note that it changes when we add it to shirt bu, shi. When a falling tone word follows, we get a rise. But only for this one word we get that change. Let's go to the next slide. Compound words. I think we'll talk about a little bit more later. I hope so. Compound nouns and compound verbs in Chinese also show distinction in the, the negation. What's doing the negating. Again, verby things are negated with bu. So we can say bei. Tells us bei has to be verby. It means unprepared, not prepared. Buan means restless, not at peace. So again, the choice of 不, rather than another negative word, of which, of which there are several, tells us it's ah. We're looking at verby things in these cases. An can also have noun type meanings. For contrast, nouny things can be negated with fei, which is an old Chinese word meaning not be. So it includes a copula, it's a fusion of neg with copula. Fei is one example means how did we how did my dictionary translate it presumptuous the literal breakdown is not not being proportion going beyond what is proportionate fei fun if we said bu fun or bufen that would be different would have a different sense and finally non-violence fei Bao li means violent to say that it's or violence rather than noun to negate that meaning we add fei rather than bu. So any questions about this? Peter, you've seen Fei in Fei Chang. The best you can be. Extraordinary. That's right. Not the ordinary one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it for this little mini lesson. Yep. Next,
0: we are going to move on to uh, F the Ineffable. Um, One of the last sections of our podcast schedule every podcast, you should look forward to F the Ineffable. If you are a diligent listener and listen through all the lessons, you will get to F the Ineffable and in wordplay. So for F the Ineffable today, of course, we're going to talk about juncture phenomena, which we have already talked about a little bit. We have some some old ones and some new ones to jog your memory. So we have electric versus electric, but we also have spike raft versus spy craft. Right, and this is a very good one. Of course, Tyler came up with this one. So, you could have a raft full of spikes or a craft for spying, and that's spike raft or spy
2: craft. Spike craft, spy craft. Those are different. In, in some sense, it's the same sounds in both cases, but there's special little phenomena having, having to do with how much breath is expelled on the K.
0: I also think the vowels are different after the SP spike raft versus spy craft. I think it's oh. yeah. and more prominent in the. We're
2: Good point. Yeah, that's well, also awesome. classic. So with different letters, of course. You were more interested in the sounds involved, but there's are phonetic differences. Well, we uh,
1: brought back this example: electric
0: versus electric. Um, somebody doesn't want to elect Ron, apparently. So, Mm-mm. so, and we've got our our famous famous example that surely everyone has seen before: ice cream versus ice cream. You scream, ice cream. We all we scream, all scream for for ice scream.
1: cream. Yeah.
0: So that is uh, an exploitation of the juncture phenomenon, which native speakers know. That's why you find it delightful. <laughs> so we want you to tell us some of your favorite juncture phenomena. So whichever ones you come up with, go ahead and add us on social media. And you know, if you come up with an RT-worthy juncture phenomena, look forward to it because. Let's, uh, well,
2: let's here real quick. Langoinstitute.com at Langoinstitute.com uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, too, right? Everywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. we're everywhere.
2: we the same name.
1: We're even on Twitch as of this week.
2: Coming soon.
0: All right. So a little bit of wordplay. Um, a quote first from Calvin and Hobbes that verbing weirds languages right? You can make stuff into verbs and that's kind of fun and it's an example of it because weird isn't typically thought of as a verb and there uh, Calvin and Hobbes has changed weird to a verb verbing weirds language. So uh, Tyler you maybe want to read the next one if you'll click that Lisa.
2: Oh you guys like wise guys? Click again. I like wise guys like wise guys.
1: <laughs> so that,
0: there's no context for you guys like wise guys. I like wise guys like wise guys. It's just a, it's a just Tylerism. <laughs> it. Uh, it, it has come down. Uh, it is the sweet manna that's provided for puns, and we love it. So, mm-hmm.
1: belongs on same, this page.
2: Same, same string of three morphemes, but grouped together in different words mm-hmm. and phrases.
0: Right. So, a little bit of our juncture phenomena and a little bit of tongue twister all tied in, and very clever. Uh, resequencing of some of the same roots, so uh, we couldn't resist sharing it. Now we're gonna—we have a little bit of time left for some allegations. <laughs> now, if you are not watching this podcast, you should know we are not spelling allegations the way you think. We're spelling it as if it comes from alligator. So the question is: Do alligators alligate? Now, uh. Mostly Tyler, but we have come up with a list (laughs) of words for our alligator game. And of course, if you think of things that need to be alligated, then you should let us know. Uh, We got
1: five slides of these, but we had to cut. (laughs) So there's tons of material here in English.
0: Later, allegations. (laughs) 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 All right. So um, I guess I'll read a couple and then you guys can read a couple and... We'll okay. kind of split it up. I'll do this first slide, and you, Lisa can do the next slide, I guess. Sounds so good. So our first—I'll read the first slide. It starts off with: Does a spider spide? Does a blubber blub? Does a ledger ledge? Does a ladder lad? Does a butter butt? Does a gopher gof? Does a beaver beave? I argue yes. Does an utter ud? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So good. Does a chancellor chancel? of that. Does a figure fig? Does a number numb? Does a misnomer misnome? Does a seller sell? Does a finger fing? Does a ginger ginge? Does leather leth?
0: On misnomer misnome, it makes me think of Chomsky because I misnome. You
1: know what I mean? Oh, nice.
0: So you're a misnomer. <laughs>
1: misnomer.
0: Spelled
2: differently. <laughs> Do scissors sizz? Does a philosopher philosoph? <laughs> Does a meter meet? Does a tuber tube? If you're a YouTuber, you YouTube, I suppose. Does a visor vise? Does a shower shower? <laughs> Does power pow? Puts the pow in power. Does a Peter Pete as an answer? Well, yes. <laughs> yes,
1: that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Peters do.
0: So, last slide here uh, is our outro material. Uh, of course, you should check out the Langopod. Pod. It's uh, now on YouTube, and not forthcoming, but fifth coming mm-hmm. on iTunes. Um read more about podcast topics on our blog. And we're even maybe gonna go through and add some extra supporting blogs to some of our earlier topics too.
1: Yeah, we did that with syllable structure and we spotlighted a couple more languages that we specialize in at Lango. And uh, as far as the feedback so far from students, they really liked it, really found it useful. So maybe we'll pick out some more topics and talk about the languages we teach. And uh, LSA annual meeting, the uh, Linguistic Society of America has their annual meeting virtual this year uh, in January, I believe January 6th, and Lango will be having a, will be sponsoring and we'll be hosting an AMA, an Ask Me Anything, in our own virtual room. So if you're attending or if you want to attend, there's still time to register, please join and come talk to us.
2: It's the 6th of January?
1: I believe so. It's that Thursday. Thursday. Eight, that was the first uh, week of January. It's usually in yeah. a very cold destination. Um mm-hmm. so this year That's we have true. the luxury of being warm in our home offices.
0: Uh yeah, it looks like the virtual meeting is 7 to 10th, 20 the 7th through the 10th in 2021. So maybe the kickoff is the- 7th, yeah, kickoff should be the 6th. And then
1: there's a bunch of other meetings to the following week, so they spread it out. So please join for that. Our Spring session is coming up. It starts January 11th to March 14th. We're already having people enroll and there's still time to save 10% on all your language programs before the end of the month. Um, we're continuing online lessons as well as on-site and blended options. Conversation hours will also continue virtually as well as IGTV live sessions. I thought that went really well. Peter hosted one. Um, We've got one coming up next week about the words of the year, hot topic. All these new words that have come into English thanks to COVID, which was the uh, American dialect society choice for, uh, nominated choice for word of the year. Mm and. Linguistics for language learning workshops will continue those as well. And any questions or comments, please get at Peter or at us in general on social. I have a question. I have an answer.
2: What is what does a cellar taste like?
1: <laughs> a cellar tastes like. It's a wine joke. Celery. Oh. <laughs> ah, ah. Yum. Oh, that was too good.
0: <laughs> i love it
1: i do too all right we gotta I end mean, on time hmm?
0: i think that's it for us today so um we'll see all you Lango knots next time uh until then maybe set your phrases to stun <laughs>
2: <laughs> <speaking> 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 speak
1: soon oh. <laughs>